0: everyone, this is Bill Ullman recording at the Consensus 2022 conference here in very sunny, very hot Austin, Texas. We're at the Coindesk podcast studio and I am your host today and we are talking to none other than Matt Burton, one of the leading venture capital investors in cryptocurrency and blockchain and fintech companies. Matt is a partner at QED Investors, one of the leading venture capital companies in America. Welcome, Matt. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. And I should say welcome back, Matt, because we've done this before at the Squashing the Markets podcast back in New York City. Um, I want to start out talking about your journey into cryptocurrency and investing in cryptocurrency and blockchain companies. How did that come about?
1: Yeah, it's actually a really interesting story. So uh, I started my career in the online advertising space, building out a lot of the infrastructure there. And so, you know, through that experience, I sort of have more of a technical lens that I look through a lot of the investments through. And when I first found sort of the crypto space, you know, it was sort of a lot of, uh, you know, I was leaning a lot more on my ad tech background versus my FinTech background and understanding it. Um, and the biggest sort of initial uh, reaction I had to it was, there's no way this new type of database is gonna be able to stay up. It's definitely gonna go down. It's definitely gonna get hacked. It's definitely gonna go away. I mean, this is 2013, 2014. And then, you know, it didn't, it continued to uh, to sort of impress me as, as, a, as a new technology. And then really in sort of 2016, 17, I sort of had to reassess a lot of those initial reactions and say, wow, you know, all of my previous frameworks and understandings that I used towards technology were wrong in this case. You know, how do I sort of rethink about this space in a new light? Um, and so that's when I sort of got involved personally. I started sort of, you know what I, I recommend to a lot of people, you have to participate in this environment to learn. Well, and and so I, I very early.
0: clearly remember you telling me, cause we've known each other for a while now, Uh, I think it was 2016 or 17, you said, buy a little Bitcoin. I don't know if it's going up or down, but there's a chance that in five or ten years it's worth a lot of money. Exactly. You couldn't (laughs) have been more correct, by the way.
1: Yeah. And and then so, you know, really, that was my personal journey. And I think that's how most people get into this space is they start to experiment and see it personally, you know, uh, over time, I, I sort of started studying it a little bit closer and saying, okay. you know, as a FinTech investor, this is a trend that I can't ignore. And I need to understand sort of where it's going to impact the FinTech space, both because there's a lot of investment opportunities, but almost as important is my portfolio companies are asking for advice on how to navigate this and should they be putting resources in it and how should they think about it. And I needed a better answer than, you know, hey, I've experimented it personally. (laughs) Right.
0: So, When you look at a cryptocurrency platform, what are the attributes that you look for? What is it? What makes a cryptocurrency exchange or a token company or anything that's out there, one of the service providers to the industry? what makes them investable from a venture capital point of view from your qed perspective
1: yes yeah, so, so again the, the this is a new technology so it can be used in a lot of different ways the lens that i use is the fintech lens so i'm really coming in from okay what does this mean for my direct to consumer businesses that i have backed what does this mean for my sort of b2b businesses that i'm investing in and and how do those opportunities change and you know really so so i led bitso's series b and i'm, I'm excited uh, daniel vogel the ceo is here at the conference and speaking later um and that was the when i was doing the diligence on that side i i for the first time realized that you know the big powerful piece of this space is that a lot all, all of the infrastructure is open sourced which means that you don't have to develop the full sort of software stack yourself And you can really sort of add additional products quickly bitso started out as a cryptocurrency exchange but then they had added remittances as a new product line they had started to add interest bearing accounts they had card products that were coming about and i all of a sudden saw wow this is a really interesting tech stack to build on because you can launch three or four products and monetize that consumer and then that's going to give you a huge edge in acquiring your customers because you're going to be able to spend a lot more on marketing to acquire that user because your monthly sort of, you know, uh, uh, revenues on a user basis are going to be higher than a traditional neobank. Right. And that was the first big light bulb moment that went off for me.
0: And Bitso, remind everybody where they're from and where they're based.
1: Yeah. So Bitso is uh, is the largest uh, crypto exchange or crypto neobank in Latin America. So today they're in Mexico, Colombia, Brazil, Argentina and El Salvador uh, with more countries to come. And uh, yeah, it was, it was super interesting because I also could see how much stronger the the product market fit was in latin america versus the us was the other sort of big opening
0: and why was that why were you able to see that there so so the the first piece is that
1: you know in latin america the average consumer and actually business trust their financial institutions a lot less they have had a history of higher inflation of not being able to, uh, to to trust that when they wake up tomorrow morning that the that the bank account balance will be the same. Argentina tends to default on their currency on a regular basis. And so because of that, it was actually a much better fit for a lot of the the biggest features of crypto. Um, and when you look at the usage, you know one of the big lessons I had to learn as an American investor, was that my my sort of frameworks that I used in my American outlook was actually very unhelpful in crypto because a lot of, uh, in most cases, it's actually a stronger product market fit outside of the U.S. than in the U.S. Um, and so, you know, Bitso was really my first experience with that, you know, and uh, we're in the process of incubating a new company uh, in Eastern Europe right now that that sort of is very similar. And, and the research has led me to believe that, you know, these are also countries where, you know, they don't really have the financial institutions that can serve consumers You know in today's world. And so when you're looking to sort of fulfill that, the crypto rails are very attractive to build on.
0: We're going to touch more on U.S. versus non-U.S. in a bit. I want to talk shift the conversation back to what we hear a lot about here at the conference and a lot about reading about called DeFi, decentralized finance. Can you talk about what that is and give us kind of a layman's definition of DeFi and correct me also at the same time if I'm wrong? I've sort of thought of it as being able to borrow against cryptocurrency through a non-regular traditional bank and also earn money on my crypto in crypto. But maybe you could put some uh, color commentary on that.
1: So initially, when I sort of got into crypto, Bitcoin was sort of dominant. I think of Bitcoin as just digital cash, right? It's right. the ability to send money peer to peer to other people without having to go through sort of the correspondent banking network that, that exists. Um, Ethereum was really the first time that I realized that you could uh, put on programmable code on top of Ethereum to create these smart contracts. And then you were able to sort of build things that we see in sort of the offline world or the traditional world like lending. Right. Um, And then, you know, build on top of that into like very complicated staking or, you know, uh, some of the interesting things that are going around about automated market makers, new types of futures contracts that don't really exist, you know, in the traditional markets. And it's sort of this ability to program on top of these these crypto rails um, and and basically be able to automate a lot of the middlemen down towards sort of like, you know, basically just network costs, um, I think is very powerful. Um, It's interesting today where, you know, I think a lot of people had really high expectations for what DeFi was going to do. And it's still sort of in its, you know. Uh, middling stages where the tech quite hasn't caught up with everybody's use case, but I think it's only a matter of time before it sort of gets bigger and bigger.
0: And does that mean it's a uh, threat to the traditional financial services world? Or is this something that ultimately the traditional financial services world is going to incorporate into its own business processes?
1: So my belief, it's going to be a little bit of both right? I think that people will find ways to use this technology that was not possible in the old world. And those will be brand new use cases that we'll ever see. But I think, to your point, if you talk to a lot of the people, if you talk to a trader on Wall Street, and you ask them sort of what their pain points are, they almost always point to their back office, that they don't have the ability to sort of execute the trades that they want to because of, either varying layers of compliance that make it very difficult or back office or data or etc and i think the the big sort of potential value of DeFi is to automate so much of that and turn all those those sort of human manual processes into sort of fully automated pieces of of sort of your back end sort of the plumbing right like most people don't think about sort of how the plumbing works whether it's stocks or bonds or anything No, because it works well Correct, because it works and they just sort of take it as, a, as you know, for on face value. Um, but there's actually a lot of friction and costs that are associated with that. And I think we've sort of, my view is we've optimized the existing system about as much as we can. There's not much more efficiency we can sort of squeeze out of it. And I think that's why, you know, a lot of builders and entrepreneurs are attracted to crypto because the ability to make a 10x improvement in something is possible here.
0: Let's come back to the global narrative that's going on in this space. Um, I can tell everyone anecdotally that I hear a lot of foreign languages here at Consensus. I've heard Spanish, French, Russian, uh, among other languages. And um, you just talked about a company in Mexico and a company in Eastern Europe that you're looking at and have invested in. What is going on? Why is crypto so global? How global is it? Do you think that that the U.S. is simply part of a large global market? Or is the U.S. really leading in this in this uh, crypto world?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if you if you look over the last five years where most people as sort of cryptos come on their radar, a lot of the development has happened in the U.S., right? It's been a lot of the bigger companies that have come and gone public and acquired lots of users have been sort of in the Western world. That being said, I think the like uh, the playing field is being leveled right now. And now you're seeing sort of an explosion of activity in sort of the rest of the world because of the open source nature of this space. Anybody with a computer connection can basically connect and start contributing either sort of on a mining level contributing to the network or through writing software themselves that they sort of open source and 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 contribute to the market and so i think that that global nature of it i mean as you say lots of languages this conference could not be more different than money 2020 in terms of just you know Every walk of life is here. Every age is here. Absolutely. It's, it's just, you know, if, until you've actually done it and come to these conferences, you don't quite understand what's going on. A lot of people are, oh, it must be like FinTech or it must be like a traditional conference. It is not. Right. It's right. A very. This different, is not
0: just your average trade show. <laughs> Correct. So we've got this global business now and we have what I would call a dysfunctional U.S. regulatory environment. Dysfunctional in a number of ways. Number one, we have both federal and state regulations that can be confusing and in conflict with each other. We also have a federal government that has really hasn't acted. CFTC says, we want to do it. Gary Gensler at the SEC says, I want to do it. The Fed has its issues. Treasury has its issues. What's the current state of regulation in the U.S. as you see it today?
1: Yeah, I mean, as, as you mentioned, it's a very difficult situation to navigate. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, what's happening is a lot of the innovation is being pushed offshore or teams are thinking about it. And I, it's it's really sad because, you know, one of the strongest product market fits in the entire crypto world is USD stable coins, right? I am now seeing an explosion of cross-border payments that are using USD, you know, uh, stable coins. And... I think this is an area that we could lead the world and we could even further expand on sort of the dominance of of, of the global currency that, that we sort of have you know in the traditional banking world but even in those what what seems like a very simple use case there's not a lot of regulatory clarity people don't people want to be compliant but until they get told the rules it's very very difficult and so i hope that this will change i hope that more education will go on in D.C. and at the local state houses to be able to understand that this is an opportunity. This is the future. And this is a place where we can really lead You know the world.
0: Do we think you do you think we're getting closer? I mean, I saw Senator Lummis and Jillen Brand on TV on CNBC the other day talking about coming together, Republican and Democrat. Are we how would you handicap the situation? Is this uh, in the next three months, next year, next five years, we get it sorted?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the interesting things about this space is that there's and and you might see this too, Bill, there's so much innovation and change happening on a daily basis that even now that I'm mostly full time in this space, I have trouble keeping up. And so that sort of very dynamic environment is very difficult for politicians. Yeah. Right. Because they this is just, you know, maybe five percent of their time they would they would spend on that if that maybe it's one percent of their time. And so I, I get the feeling that a lot of politicians are fearful because it's just more of an unknown to them. And so I think the industry as a whole needs to double down on sort of the education. And I'm sort of optimistic. I see a lot more public policy. I see a lot of other countries sort of leading the way in terms of putting better frameworks out. Um, And I'm hopeful. I don't think in three months anything's going to change. But I think over the next sort of one to five year time frame, I am hopeful that look, that this doesn't become a Democratic issue or a Republican issue, that they can really say, look, this is sort of a future infrastructure piece of, you know, the economy going forward and and we need to
0: support it. That's an interesting way to put it, that it's infrastructure, the same way we're building bridges and roads and fiber optic cables and satellites communications. We need a financial infrastructure that's ready for the 21st and 22nd century, too.
1: Exactly. And it's going to happen whether we want to or not. Like, that's just the truth. And the the, the worry (laughs) is,
0: I suppose, that a lot of this just moves offshore. Exactly. And the talent and the transactions and everything and the profits are outside the U.S.
1: Exactly. I mean, it's it would it would be a real shame if in 5 years we were sitting back and saying oh man you know the top companies the top protocols the you know the top innovations were all done outside the US versus here
0: so my last uh, big question is we've obviously seen a correction in the markets themselves in the last you know 3 or 4 months token prices bitcoin prices are down between i don't know 25 to Seventy percent, depending you you pick it. Some have gone to zero. Is this a a minor blip? Is this an event that is going to wash out a lot of the weak hands, weak companies in the environment? What? How do you put this correction in perspective of what's gone on over the last five, ten years in the space?
1: Yeah. So so when it comes to sort of these market cycles, like most of my experience has been in in building startups. Um, and you know, since since I started my career, I've gone through multiple cycles uh, that exist, and unfortunately, it's just a part of human nature. This sort of greed and fear sort of cycle that we go through, um, and in the crypto space, it 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 tends to be even more extreme on the greed and the fear side. And so the cycles are up and down, even the roller coaster is is harder to ride. Um, For me, I I try to focus on, you know, where is their product market fit and where is their real value that's accruing to consumers and businesses. And what I'm seeing today is is that there's just a lot of talent still moving into crypto. There's a lot of people who are not phased by the fact that the sort of drawdown has happened. There's a belief that, yes, we're in a bear market. Bear markets are where the weaker companies and projects wash out luckily the talent will then move towards the stronger sort of companies and protocols. And then that sets the stage for the next bull run, yep. you know? And, and so, um,
0: I circle mean, of life.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've been, I will say I've been surprised. I thought the mood here was going to be a little bit darker.
0: Oh no. And I, I have not seen that. I think, and I, I was going to, I was going to mention that and I'm glad you brought it up because the mood here is something between high energy and jubilation. I don't, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, kind of infectious. Um, There's so much interest and so much energy around talking about this. Okay. So as you know, since you were on a podcast with me before, the last thing I always do in Squashing the Market podcast is a little lightning round. I'm going to give you kind of either or questions. There's no right or wrong answer, but you get to just pick one. Bitcoin or Ethereum? Ethereum. Picasso painting or NFT of a Picasso painting?
1: I would say Picasso painting.
0: Bitcoin price in two years lower or higher than $50,000? Definitely higher. Adoption of cryptocurrencies in general, will it be faster in the United States or faster outside the United States? Definitely faster outside the United States. And since we're both tennis players, and I am have the honor actually of talking to a former Texas State tennis champion here, Mr. Burton, I've got to ask you, is Rafa Nadal the greatest player of all time? I mean,
1: I, I I was skeptical of this, but I am now coming to the conclusion that he really is. It is absolutely incredible what he's been able to, uh, to, to do over his career.
0: And it's still going. It, it might not be the end. Matt Burton, thank you so much. Always great to talk to you, and I know we'll be talking more in the future. Uh, thanks so much, Bill.